You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the I Dig It Podcast. A podcast where we talk about the student perspective of navigating the world of archaeology and anthropology. I'm your host, Michaela, And I'm your host, Alyssa. In today's episode, we will be bantering a bit about some of your questions sent in through Instagram on archaeology. On this day, day 537 of quarantine, let me tell you something. <laughs> it has not been the best of times or the worst of times. Oh it's not God. a day of enlightenment. It's You're also not a day of sorrow. too good at that voice. Have you been practicing <laughs> that? <laughs> No. <laughs> that was impressive. I feel like it would, it, it would, I would sound like I'm lying if I say no, but I really haven't. <laughs> <laughs> so, how was your week? Anything new this week? Same old, well, same old. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's it's there. Um, it's a week. <laughs> I am, it's, been a, it's been a week, I guess. Time. Do you know what's kind of weird to me is how slow March felt in comparison to April, and now it's already almost the middle I of May. I literally can't remember a single thing that happened in April. I know, like it was, it, weird. <laughs> it was in a blink. I think I was just staring at my computer for the majority of that time. I was just playing like Animal Crossing, some VR, <laughs> League of Legends, and that's about it. Man, that's crazy. And then, like, this month in comparison, though, is, it's going pretty slow for me. I started my CRM job last week, yeah, um, which is the same job I had before my master's, but now I get, like, they pay by degree level, so I got a pay raise for doing the same thing, which is nice. Um, we start at 6.30 a.m. every day. Um, last week it was for six days. This week it'll be for four days. So 6.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Yeah, pretty exhausting. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, just watching watching dirt move Yeah, all day. Mm. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. I'm pretty sure I've listened to nearly every podcast on the earth. <laughs> Yeah. What's uh, one podcast that you can recommend for this week? One podcast I've been super into this week is called Wind of Change by The New Yorker or New York Times. Um, and it's basically like an investigative podcast about how the song Wind of Change by the Scorpions, I think is what they're called, was written by the CIA oh. <laughs> or supposed to have been written by the CIA. And that was basically like the anthem for fall of the Berlin wall and the change in Soviet union. Okay. Yeah. That's not so, where I thought that that was going to go. Yeah. It's yeah. Basically the song came out right when all of that stuff was happening and just everyone in Europe like latched onto it and especially the people of that region and mm -hmm. someone was tipped off that that song was actually written by the CIA to incite like these feelings of change in a government and basically he dedicated like 10 years of his life to researching this to see oh if it was true and so I'm like halfway through this podcast now it's been super interesting I'm totally gonna check it out Sounds yeah great. it was really cool and then there was that one I sent you today um, by Radiolab. Love Radiolab and like NPR and all of those 
podcasts, but the one we listened to today was called Why Fish Don't Exist. <laughs> and I thought that was a really good one also. That was a really good one. This woman who used to work for Radio Lab, she quit to write and she was researching about this one guy who did a lot of things and was the first president of Stanford and how he classified 2,000 of the fish species. Yeah, he basically like discovered 2,000 species of fish. Yeah. And so it was just kind of like going into his life and his discoveries and then like this big event that happened to him and equating it to her life and then more into research for him. And it was very interesting. All right. Shall we dive into some of our Instagram questions we received this week? I think we shall. I think we shall. All right. So I got a question on my Instagram. What is the biggest misconception about archaeology? Biggest misconception about archaeology. I think it depends on which way that you look at it. Yeah. One I get a lot is that we look for dinosaur bones. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so I, you know what? I love dinosaurs. Oh, you know what? Me too. Have you found any? No, I'm not a paleontologist. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't do that. If we find a dinosaur bone, we call someone else. (laughs) I think, yeah, I think most of the biggest misconceptions come from like what you see in Hollywood films. Yeah. So like the typical like Indiana Jones hacking through the forest, stealing stuff from ancient temples. Yeah, definitely. Getting chased by giant boulders. Wait, you've never been chased by a giant boulder? Oh, wait, you have? I thought we weren't supposed to talk about this. Oh, you're right. I legally can't say anything. I'm sorry, you guys. You have to. Maybe another time. If the public finds out that boulders can chase people, imagine the chaos. The boulders have a mind of their own because you know what? They're from aliens. I think another thing other than aliens and archaeology, like archaeology is not just one thing. It's Mm. multifaceted. And because people have expertise and are specialized in one or many topics, it does not necessarily mean that they know about a different topic or a different area of research or a different time period. I agree with that. A lot of the times I get asked like, oh, what do you think about like Roman whatever or Egyptian whatever? And I'm like, I've like, I know about them, but I don't study other regions other than Cambodia, really. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, what do you think about the blah, blah, blah they found in Mesoamerica? I'm like, I didn't know that. (laughs) I didn't read that small piece of archaeology news that you read on facebook that one day yeah it's like i do wish that i could just have all like the feeds available like readily available so then i can see like oh this was just found this was just published in this but there's just so much to read because there's so much that's always published and i'm not entirely too sure what's published to large groups of people so people seeing it on facebook and such i'm like mm-hmm. i yeah and like a lot of the stuff in like social media is like pseudo archaeology or not exactly accurate to like what's actually being studied. Like, for example, we had like the Smithsonian publish an article on our research out in Cambodia. And a lot of the stuff was like hyperbole and just 
exaggerated and not super accurate. So I think media likes to focus on like hooks, clickbait, draw people in. It's not necessarily accurate. (laughs) I agree with that. The intro to archaeology class in my undergrad, the title of it was something along the lines of tombs and pyramids. There's tombs, pyramids, and there's like some other little hook. We had tombs, pits, and pyres. Oh, I love that. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And you go into the class and she's like, yeah, we're actually not talking about any of those things at all. It was just one way to get people into the class. And I'm like, oh, what did you talk about? Um, we talked about archaeological practices. Boring. <laughs> <laughs> I I loved her though. Dr. I Pye. mean, good job, but false advertising. Oh, definitely. Because I know I don't know about all universities, but some universities need to have a specific number of students enrolled in the class to have that. Yeah, and yeah. so we needed that intro to archaeology class because for an anthropology degree, you have to have that. We talked about stratigraphy and all that fun stuff and using Hello Kitty designs. Yeah. (laughs) So basically nothing like the title. Yeah. She's from Japan and English is not her first language. So sometimes it was like hard to understand because sometimes she's like, I don't know what that word is. And we're all just like, we don't know what you're talking about either. (laughs) I absolutely adored her. I love her so much. Well, I'm (laughs) glad you got swooned into taking the course. I had to. <laughs> oh, you had to. Okay, okay. Never mind. And we all love the professor. Like, we don't care about being swooned. <laughs> <laughs> so it happens even within the field, too. All these clickbait things to try to yeah. make <laughs> topics more interesting. <laughs> I understand the value of, like, clickbait archaeology because it does bring interest into the field from, like, people who aren't necessarily interested to begin with. Mm-hmm. And I know, like, a lot of like our peers got into archaeology through like Indiana Jones or whatever and ancient aliens, Mm -hmm. like I said in the last episode. But yeah, so as long as like you get people interested, I think they'll eventually find their way to like accurate source material. Yeah. I guess that's one way to. And doing their own research too. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, oh, wait, this documentary was totally biased. And some of it is is as glamorous as like indiana jones you know like my research in cambodia we ride on like the back of motorcycles with machetes and hack through the forest to try to find mounds like that's as close to (laughs) indiana jones as you're gonna get so it just depends on like what kind of archaeology you go into and where you're working in the world and what kind of environment you get i think also one of the misconceptions is we are extremely safe we don't just like and ethical. I mean, I won't. I don't know about it all, but like most, <laughs> I would say safe is up for interpretation. <laughs> it's based on the country you're working in. Yeah, based on the like, there are some situations where I would consider not so safe. Like, for example, one of the guest houses we were staying at for our field work in Kokare in Cambodia, they had this little like. It was like a platform restaurant thing, like on the side of the hill. And so we would eat breakfast and dinner there every day. But mm-hmm. while we were eating there, they were doing construction on the the beams, like the pillars oh. that were holding oh. this uh, structure like to the hill. And yeah. so like 
we it would like be shaking the whole structure while we were eating and then they were like hanging off of the tractors to like hold the structure <laughs> onto the hill and we're like um i don't think this is <laughs> very yeah. safe and also like walking around sometimes you get like attacked by fire ants oh i have a story <laughs> in bulgaria one of the trenches i was working in there was like a hole it was like okay there should not be any hole like maybe there's something in there like maybe an artifact or something it was a snake hole oh no and then i immediately i'm like oh my god and then they had me get out because they're just like we can't leave the trench i'm like but i'm curious they're just like yeah like have the guys go over to like check it out and they kept like going through layers and eventually like they got through the hole and there's no snake in there it was just like oh yeah false alarm we're fine but it was yeah just- i'm like constantly terrified of critters in the field like we yeah. had like monkeys all around us when we were doing field work and monkeys are cute but they can be dangerous too and like definitely you have to be on the lookout for like rabies and we had like a bat on one of our field projects and mm-hmm. bats are like little sky puppies but they're so dangerous and can kill you <laughs> with a bite and so it's like oh you're so cute but you could kill me and <laughs> all of these things you have to be aware of. so i think i think in a way this is a misconception but not really depends on the experience i think yeah. we we can be glamorous like hollywood films but most of the time you're sitting at a desk <laughs> That's very true. And I would also say that it's not always about a search for a buried treasure. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Seeking to gain anything other yeah. than knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> that I is think- our treasure. Knowledge. <laughs> knowledge is our treasure. Yeah, yeah. I think um, words used in like pseudo archaeology are like discovery and lost. Lost. The lost city of Atlantis. And like, yeah, the notion of, like, discovery, I think, is a very, like, old colonialistic view of anthropology, archaeology that's mm-hmm. left over from the 70s when people were going out and just, like, sledgehammering things to add to their collections at home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> I think, yeah, it's definitely not like that. And I think if your source says something about discovery, maybe look, take it with a grain of salt and dig into it a little more. I know I've seen, I think it was years ago, somewhere in the Amazon, they're just like, oh, an undiscovered tribe has been discovered. <laughs> and it's just like, like oh, what? No. Yeah, it's like, no, they've, they've been there. They're just chilling. Yeah, they're just chilling without interfering <laughs> with, you know, their life. Yeah. I think that can lead into the next question that we talked a little bit about, like, the search for knowledge and you're sitting at your desk for a lot of this. And so the next question is, do you find yourself at a desk or in the field more often? But we will get to that after this quick break. So right before our little break that we just had, Alyssa mentioned the question, do you find yourself at a desk or in the field more often? And I think that's a really big question because that could also go with that misconception like we were just talking about. Yeah, it's not always adventure time when you're in the field of archaeology. I think 
the majority of it is spent at your desk doing research, doing preparation for fieldwork, doing analysis on fieldwork. And then most archaeologists, I would say, go into the field for about like one to three months a year, um, either in the summer or winter, depending on where in the world you're working and what the seasons are like. Yeah. Yeah. And what's your current occupation as well? Yeah, exactly. So like, like if, if you're, you're in, yeah, if you're in like a research position or professorship, I think you go like when you're not teaching classes. So that's usually in the summer and same with like postdocs and stuff like that. Uh, definitely. If you're like a postgrad student, it's always in the summer or after classes. I think I'm going to have some issues because the field season for Cambodia is usually in the winter. So like January, February ish, which is when I'm supposed to be taking classes. So we're going to have to figure out how to do that because in the summer, it's just too hot. Like you cannot be doing archaeology because you will burn. And then you'll blow up and then you'll blow up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. For me, I would also have to say in the desk world because of doing a lot of digital work with photogrammetry, yeah. 3D modeling, ArcGIS, just research. You're all you're just always at a desk. Yeah. And then it's like I don't really have anywhere specifically where I'm currently working right now or researching. So I'm not even in the field and I really miss it. Yeah. I've I've always like called myself an indoor archaeologist. I think I prefer to be on the computer doing monotonous research and like GIS work and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I do like field work too, but I am not the kind of person who wants to be in the field all the time. I'd rather be like in the data processing end of things. I love being there from beginning to end. So it's like just beginning with learning and researching about the area that you're going to be in the field or working and looking at. And then you take that research and that knowledge and you actually go into the field and then you look at the field, you survey, and then you start excavating if it's what you need to do. You excavate, you find some things, and then you start processing them. Because so then you go into a lab. So that's not even on the field anymore. So then you're in a lab working. And then you're doing some monotonous work where you're just like <laughs> staring at a piece of ceramic for five minutes. What trying are to, you? <laughs> trying to figure out if it's a late uh, late Bronze Age or early Iron Age because they look very similar in some ways. <laughs> and then figuring it out and then labeling it and then photographing it. I think most archaeologists can say they've had their fair share of hours in the ceramic lab, just staring at ceramics. Yes, lab monkeys. Love them. That was my first archaeology experience was a lab season in Mexico, and it was just pottery shirt after pottery shirt and just drawing the profiles and measuring them over and over and over. I... I disagree. I didn't like that. <laughs> Some people, that's like fun. But my hand was like aching from drying and my, yeah, I was covered in that's graphite. And, yeah. <laughs> so in that case, I'd rather be like out in the field finding the pottery. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I'm just such a many hats type of person where I literally will enjoy anything that I'm given (laughs) and not like a please just give me anything to do it's like no I will like go into this 110% and I'll do the best job that I can do you get in the groove of 
groove of things. Just zone in for hours on a task. I know. And then, like, every single thing that I'm, like, looking at, or if it's, like, a new piece of pottery or if I'm just, like, doing archival work, I'm like, oh, this is so interesting. Like, (laughs) there's a time when I was just archiving a newspaper from the 1960s, and I was just, like, reading the newspaper. I'm like, oh, what a fun time. And then I'm, like, scanning it and stuff like that, and I'm reading it. And I I just get into the groove. Those um, instances with, like, written work are super cool. I worked in a special collections library for a little bit during undergrad, and I – got to read like letters from old students back in the like late 1700s and early 1800s like letters to their family and then there were also some letters from like Robert Frost and like written to his family and back and it was reading about like one of them was about how this kid who was living in the dorm his neighbor left on an oil lamp and burned the dorm down so he had to move out (laughs) Oh my gosh. <laughs> into a different kid. And that was recorded and kept in the library. Like, oh, what a cool perspective of this incident <laughs> on campus back in the 1800s. Yeah. So, written work is cool. Yeah. I have a similar experience because I interned at a museum, a local museum to me called the Bowers Museum for three years. And I worked in like the collections department and kind of like traveled around within the department. The last major exhibit that I was able to kind of work on before my master's was about the Empress Dowager Cixi, the last Empress of China. So there was a car that was going to be imported from China to Santa Ana, California, and it was Empress Dowager Cixi's car from 19. It was a 1902 Durea Surrey, and I'm probably saying that wrong. And it was made in the United States, and then it was sent over to China for her. And there's, like, kind of thoughts that she never even drove in it because the driver would have to be in front of her or beside her. There was a talk about it saying that she might have never used it. But before we even got it, we were making sure what type of car it was. And so I was, like, going in to, like, deep research trying to figure out the model of the car and, like, looking at the tires and inscriptions and all this stuff. And so... I just like hyper focused in <laughs> on this work and that's what some things that would do so it's like I just love the investigation of being in the collections department and the research part of it and I know for other parts in the collection like I would go in and try to find more information about the artists and who donated it where it came from the area and I just loved it that's awesome that's a cool job to have I loved it I would yeah, that's awesome. I'd do it in a heartbeat I used to think I wanted to do museum work, but I don't. I think I'm more inclined to do like uh, research, like professor style, go out to the field type thing. Yeah, I wanted to do like photogrammetry and special collections and like museum studies and that sort of thing. But I got pulled away from it into this field now. So, did you get pulled or did you choose both? Yeah, I think, I think that happens a lot in archaeology. You're just like going about your day and then like something else interests you and you're like, oh, I'll go do that instead. And like like that happens a lot with like, yeah, changes in your path for like what you want to do with archaeology, which is cool. There's so many different yeah. things in archaeology. There's so many different things in so many different places you can yeah. go. Just follow it. And when something sparks your interest, go to that one and then something else will come up. It's really good for indecisive people like me. Oh yeah, definitely. Never boring. You can always no. 
change your field slightly and you're in a whole new country doing different stuff so I think the main part or the the worst thing about being indecisive within the field is the time commitment part because it's like oh this one has this time commitment of like a year and then this might have something else and it's like I don't know where to spend my time because this one is a year but this one is kind of like a permanent job which one do I take yeah yeah but I mean both will be good experiences my last three <laughs> years have been year-long experiences so I'm excited to be sitting in one spot for a while it's most i feel like for most archaeologists it's mostly desk and then you get tastes of the field every once in a while yeah i think most people are on like a year to year cycle of research and desk-based assessments and field research and then back to desk-based assessments and i feel like that's like the general cycle of archaeological work where it's like 75% not in the country or area you're working in and then like 25% there doing research and collecting data. Yeah. There's also a lot of steps you need to take in order to get into the field and you might only be allowed in the field during a certain time of year or not just year but like certain periods so it's like you can't just leave and then just like oh wait I want to go check this out so then you go back oh yeah yeah before you go to the field you have to have everything ready to go because you can't just go back whenever you want usually it's based on like very particular permits to even be on the land and like how long you're going to be there how much money you're going to spend exactly based on your grant we had to even mark down who ate what food during the day So, yeah, people are very particular about, like, money and time in archaeology. And so before you even get to the field, you have to have everything ready to go. And if you forget something, then you have to wait, like, a whole nother year or two to get back out in the field and collect the data again. So I think one thing that came into my mind with this question was, like, armchair anthropology. Armchair anthropology. mm -hmm, Where it's, like, you do all the research and everything from not within the region. A type of anthropology that's not really looked up upon and because it's stuff that people been doing in like the 1800s and stuff like that being like i'm gonna pass this judgment on this culture because i see them like this even though without even going (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i could i could see how that's yeah problematic it can be applied to the archaeology side of it because of doing all the research but never going to the field to do it then it's like how can you even get to the field? Well, what if you go to the field and you don't even need to excavate? And Yeah. Yeah, I feel like a lot of archaeology is also building off of other people's work too. So you don't necessarily need to go into the field as long as you're collaborating with other researchers and you can use like their data that was collected. Because like for my master's, I mean, I did go to the field, but most of my master's dissertation was based off of the lidar that i had no part in collecting mm-hmm. but what i did was like mapping on top of that lidar and then that was my data so that part didn't require me being in the field yeah and i think there's a lot of things about archaeology that don't require field work at all no i mean i would i could argue that i did some field work in my for my dissertation it's it's like it can be argued because i did all the research and 
in order to gain the knowledge and observational knowledge from VR chat, I had to go into the internet. Yeah. <laughs> I had to go into VR. Like, I, ha- I, I bought myself an Oculus Rift in December because I'm like, I'm going to be needing this for my career and stuff. And then that's when I figured out, I'm like, wait a minute. I'm going to research heritage and archaeological and museum-based worlds in VR chat. And so with that, I actually have to go into the quote-unquote field. Yeah. And it's a digital field. So I would say I, would, I could argue that yes. I spent a good amount of time in the field. Totally. Because <laughs> I went to these archaeological sites in VR for my research and did like VR archaeology and stuff like that. and. I support it. I love it. The time that I had in the VR, I got acquainted with people who played the game, befriended them on Discord, and then I had to like make sure of something because as a female on the internet, I needed to protect myself, so I have like a use like a gaming name that I use like everywhere, but I don't have my actual name associated with it. And then I had I didn't have like a picture of me as my profile picture. It was like a picture of a unicorn pooping out a rainbow with a Viking riding. <laughs> it's an epic profile icon. That's mm, for science. It's first. I mean, I've had it since like 2013. So I was like in high school when I got it. I would like add people on there and then be like, oh, like let's hang like hang out in VR. It was a very interesting time, and I'd love to talk about that experience sometime because there's a lot of questions that I still have even today about it, about the anthropology side of it rather than just the archaeology side. Maybe we'll do a segment on V-archaeology. I would be super down. Dig into that more. I would say that even if you're not like physically in the field, but you're doing like VR work. There's, There's always stuff to do, even if it doesn't involve going to the field. Yeah, that's for sure. It doesn't involve you getting sunburned and sweaty. Yeah, you don't have to be dirty to be doing archaeology. How many layers of dirt and sunscreen do you wear in the field? Many, 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 and bug spray. I, I, I don't know. I miss, I miss it. I just miss being involved in something. Yeah, we'll get there. But yeah, it was interesting talking to Chris Webster producer of the Archaeology Podcast Network. It was interesting talking to him about CRM because I feel like your experience as a CRM person above the level of an archaeology field technician is a lot different than as an archaeology field technician because I feel like field techs are mostly like grunt work. You get sent out into the field to do things that other people don't want to do. I would be interested to hear what the higher levels of this field are like. Yeah. It's like, do they spend more time in the field or do they spend more time at a desk and air conditioning? Yeah. For me, CRM and CRM, I'm 100% in the field, no time at the desk. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's a lot different than like um, research archaeology or academic yeah. archaeology. It's like, I would love to do that, but I also love research because I always love making my brain know more things. 100% prefer academic research archaeology. And I think that can also go be a segue into our next segment, which we'll get to after our break. 
The next question we're going to address, which is the last question of the day, is what archaeological discovery that you have made had the most impact on you? I love that question so much. I love this question. (laughs) It's just so nice. (laughs) Because it's not just like what archaeological discovery that has been made made an impact on you. It's like, have you made? When most people say discovery, they're like, oh, I found this ancient temple in the middle of the Amazon. Or like, they're expecting to hear an answer like that. But for me, it was... I think I might have talked about this in the first episode, but my favorite quote-unquote discovery was the whistle that we found in Mexico when I was doing my first field project there. And that's kind of the item that got me into archaeology in the first place because it was part of my first experience and it was this really cool find. And what was cool about the whistle is we thought it was just a crude little figurine and then we found a hole in the back of it and we're like oh we can dig out the hole like dig out the dirt from the hole and we're like oh my god it's a whistle and then we were the first ones to make a sound out of this whistle in over three thousand years since it was deposited and it was just like mind-blowing like wow that was so cool like i things like that where you can like recreate the sound that used to be made way back then or like see the fingerprints of the person who like molded the clay thousands of years ago it's just a connection to the past that you feel by being able to like interact with it and touch it and it like creates a timeline that just like creates two points in history and connects them and you're able to feel and see and imagine everything that was happening back then because these were people it really gives like life to objects you're working with when you are able to experience that and I think that was the first time that I understood that and realized it and kind of like really wanted to dive into it more into the field of archaeology. Like you said it definitely connects you with the people And before, it's just what you've researched, the people that you're learning about, what you're reading about. But then you get to blow into a whistle that somebody else has blown into in the past. It's a different experience, for sure. Yeah. It's one thing to read it. It's a whole other thing to feel it and see it and touch it and, yeah. Do it. I was going to say a religious experience that reminded me of my concert with Toto. (laughs) That's what I equate that to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I love seeing like the fingerprints in yeah. the clay and like in the ceramics and such. The first time I saw a fingerprint on something, I was like, they were people. <laughs> they weren't just like these fictionary, these fiction people that were existing that we're just reading about now. It's like, oh, okay. But it makes them more present than mm-hmm. being in the past. Yeah, it's super cool. And there's a lot of really cool studies on like analyzing fingerprints found on clay. Um, I started to dive into that before I found digital archaeology and then I like yeeted the other way. But uh, yeah, it's really cool. Like they're trying to determine like gender and other things from like fingerprints and what types of pottery you find them on and who is making them trying to figure out that pretty cool one some something that i got really interested in before well, i mean it was kind of around the same time as digital but i did not i was not in the genetic field was ancient dna 
it'd take a lot of work to get into it. Yeah. yeah and so like I was already at the end of my undergraduate degree, so I'm like, well, I'm gonna keep pursuing this digital archaeology. <laughs> Maybe later on in my life. <laughs> Maybe but, in my next life I'll do genetic yeah. archaeology. Yeah. Something the quote unquote archaeological discovery. Um, when I was digging in the trenches in the site in Bulgaria back in 2017, it was in Banya, Bulgaria. We're at this hilltop site and it was researching this late Bronze Age site. It was a settlement that had gone through two different burning periods. So there's one major fire, then there's another major fire. Because with the fires, it was able to solidify these walls and so it has like the oldest preserved walls in a late bronze age settlement in bulgaria i don't know about the balkans in general but in bulgaria and so that was like a really cool thing to be a part of and to document after like these fires it had been used as a early iron age site as well because they kept using it and so, but we're we're only interested in the late Bronze Age, so early Iron Age where it kept coming up. The trench that I was working in was my first trench at the site. We made ourselves like a little team name and everything. We're like Team I, yeah. And then we it was a great team, but um, <laughs> that's besides the point. There's so I was working in the trench, and there was a weird curving wall in the corner of the trench. It was connected to like a straight line, and. It was like, okay, what is this? And others were trying to figure out what it was for as like a part of fortification, a part of the house. What is this? It's kind of a weird shape. In this trench, there was different types of coloration in the sediment. And so there's like several different like burnt layers in certain areas. And so within that little curvature, there was burnt sediment. I was kind of figuring out based on the shape and the sediment that it was part of a hearth. In the mornings we would go to the site and everyone would go to their trenches and we would give a like a little roll call being like okay this is what happened yesterday this is what we're going to be doing today and then the directors would say maybe something make a comment about something and then we would move on to the next trench. So then we got to the trench that I was working on and my directors were looking at that curvature and kind of like, huh, I'm wondering what this is. And they're kind of like talking amongst themselves and I'm like, oh, I kind of have an idea, possibly. And it's like what I'm kind of coming to the interpretation of is that it's a hearth and then I kind of my my reasonings and stuff like that. And they're just like, Michaela, you're correct. This is a hearth. Like, what a wonderful <laughs> discovery you've made. And it was just like at that moment, I felt like I was part of the team in a different wow. way where I was like my feeling, not my feelings. I can that do my, this. Yeah, like I, I can do it feeling. I can see. That my interpretations were valid, even if it wasn't correct. But being validated in that way really like made me feel a part of this team, especially because that was my first year on the site and many people had been there for over five years. And it was also the last year of excavation, so I never got to go back. But it was just a really inclusive moment for me. And wow. it was a really cool discovery because they're also very happy that they figured that out, too. Like, <laughs> figured it out. But that it got figured out. And it's like, oh, interesting. Is this late or is this early Iron Age? Dang it. <laughs> that's not what we want. <laughs> but so that was my little story. 
we have a crude, a crude figurine and a hearth. Those are our, our favorite discoveries that made the most impact. Yeah. <laughs> it's the little things. It's the little things. And sometimes yeah. you don't even need to make a discovery to have something impact you. Yeah, I definitely think it's when, I think both of our experiences were like the first time we found things on our own and that just like started a fire of I want to learn more and yeah, create these hypotheses about these things. Yeah. yeah. It's like, they'll be wrong. Sure. Yeah, sure about it. Wrong. It's the process. It's the uncurable curiosity that you have and that you will always try to solve that makes the process really cool. Yeah, I definitely think that was the start of my curiosity. So thank you guys for sending in those questions. Those are really fun to talk about. Had a good time. It's really fun reminiscing on like old experiences and archaeology and just kind of reflecting on like why I love the field in general. And these questions are fun to to ponder on. Yeah. I definitely loved receiving them and seeing the people who they were from because I know them personally. It was it's such a fun fun time. <laughs> we love engagement. So if your answers differ from ours or if you agree or disagree, send them in. We'd love to hear about your favorite quote-unquote discoveries (laughs) and more. We'd love to hear about that because we're only two people. We've only gone through our own experiences. So people researching in different areas have gone to field work in different areas and countries and different time periods. Everyone has a different story. Everyone has their own story and their origin story. And they're all super fascinating because everyone is their own everyone's their own person <laughs> and it's it's all I'm always just interested in learning about people maybe that's just the anthropologist in me but I love hearing and getting getting an insight of somebody's experiences and how they became who they are today where they're headed yeah, yeah. we hope to bring in a lot of different archaeologists in talk about their experiences in the field. Yeah. It would be quite interesting. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks for tuning into the I Dig It podcast. We got a new outro for the song that was also made called The Break from the band Lunar Riptide in Huntington Beach, California. You can check them out on all social media at Lunar Riptide Band. Yes, do it. We love it so much. Thank you, Cole. Love you, Cole. And big shout out and thank you to our new family, the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thank you guys so much for hosting us. And we look forward to the future and all of the future podcasts that we will be creating with you guys. Check them out and all the other cool podcasts out there. And if you want to send us anything, you can send it to us at our Instagram and Twitter at Podcast. You can also send us an email, idigitpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. See you next time. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.